Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. It is wonderful to sing songs of praise to your name and to come together to learn from your word and particularly to reflect on the discipline of prayer. What a privilege it is to come into your presence. And so we would want to do that as your word instructs us. So help us this night as we study what the scriptures have to say about prayer that we might uh, do that to the best of our ability. So we pray for your guidance, the presence of your spirit, and that you might teach us tonight. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Um, let me just briefly review some of the things that we talked about uh, last week. And uh, we'll go through this quickly just so that those who might be here for the first time can have an opportunity to fill in some of those blanks on their outline and just to get an overall summary of what we've been talking about. So when we uh, first started making reference to our study on prayer, uh, really I, I introduced this by saying there are two things that we really want to accomplish in this. Number one, for our own personal edification, that we might become better and better at the discipline of prayer. And indeed, prayer is a discipline. It isn't something that just happens automatically, or at least not something we do well automatically. It is something we learn over the course of our lives as we walk with him. It's not to say that the young believer cannot begin to pray. Certainly we as unbelievers that never knew much about anything to do with prayer were able to pray and have our very first prayer perhaps answered when we said, Lord, forgive us of our sin and come into our, to our life. So that might have been the height of our prayer experience or our prayer discipline, you know. But um, it was an answer to prayer right away, and the Lord made us alive unto him. But as we grow in our relationship, we realize that prayer involves a little bit more than that. And so um, our study in on prayer is meant to help us personally. But a, a second reason why we're engaging in this is uh, because we want to reinstitute our prayer ministry team, those that pray with individuals that come into our congregation after service. And uh, we want to be on the same page, and we want to be helpful to each other, and we certainly want to be theologically sound in how we pray. So that is also another reason why we want to take time uh, to study prayer and then to talk about the ministry of prayer, particularly intercessory ministry for others. So the first thing we talked about was the need for uh, what we're doing here. And I suggested that a presentation is necessary because of the importance of prayer in the life of a believer as well as in the life of a congregation. Messiah said, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples. And so we want our local expression of his universal body to be a good one with regard to the discipline of prayer. So we want to be a praying congregation. On another level, we want to be a praying congregation, not only so that those who come in that have personal needs might have those needs met and be encouraged by our praying with them and for them, but we also want to be thinking about where Beth Ariel is going. So we just had a financial meeting. Uh, I never sit in on those meetings only because there is the matter of compensation, right? And so I want individuals to feel free to raise any questions, concerns about uh, how I and my family is being compensated, and I feel like being here might make it awkward for people to do that. So I don't want you to think that I'm not interested in our financial status or 
in other matters that come to the fore, but I didn't expect other matters to come to the fore. You know, if I did, then I would have been here for it. And I know that some things came up with regard to the purchase of this property. And uh, we're praying that the Lord might uh, provide for that. So why do we want to be a congregation of prayer? Because we're going to start instituting a weekly prayer time where we can come in as we pray for guidance and direction about that. Because that's a major, major uh, step in the life of Beth Ariel, but it's also a very exciting one. And there are neat things that I think can come about um, our being able uh, to do that for the long haul. Um, perhaps we might not see all of the benefits of that, but generations and those that will follow in our footsteps uh, certainly will. So that would be a real exciting thing. But we'll talk more about that. But I only bring that up here to say that we want to mobilize our congregation first and foremost in praying about this matter. And so as the elders uh, gain more and more information, then we'll know uh, what direction we're going. And then as we know what direction we're going, we can share that. And now we know what specific things we need to be in prayer for. And that's what's going to generate our coming together for prayer for that purpose. So it's interesting that as we're studying prayer for our personal benefit and for the establishing of a ministry of prayer or reestablishing a ministry of prayer, that that would sort of dovetail at this time. I think that may be very, not just serendipitous, but uh, in the sovereign divine hand of God. But uh, we also know that wherever believers are gathered for worship, uh, prayer has been a central component of that worship. I know in the modern era, what seems to be central is music. Because if you think of what takes up most time and space, it's generally the time of singing and praising God. I know none of you do this, but if you were to time all the different things that we do, you would find that we spend about, um, I'm going to say, somewhere around seven to ten minutes in our opening segment when we have a uh, we start the service with a song and we're worshiping or at least it's actually I see it as a call to worship and that's what that first song is about we're calling people to worship you know it's sort of like in the in the older in a day gone by they'd ring the bell you know and everyone knew this was time well our our song is meant to now start us thinking about we're coming into God's presence to worship him uh, as a congregation. And then we welcome everyone, and then sometimes we sing again. And so that little segment is close to seven to ten minutes. You know, So that's an important segment of our, our, our service. And then uh, when we go into our liturgy, with the lighting of the candles, the reading of Scripture, the variety of Hebrew prayers that we recite, and then uh, Yeshua's commands, et cetera, that we conclude with, that's about 15 minutes it takes us to do that. Sometimes 20, depending on um, how that goes, but about 15 minutes. And then we have a time of singing, which usually lasts close to 25 minutes to a half hour. And then I speak. And usually I speak how long? 20 minutes, right? Uh, well, lately it's been a little longer, although last Sunday was pretty good, uh, where I was about 15 or 20 minutes. But usually I'm close to 30 or 40. And, uh, and then we have our closing section, right? So that gives an idea of how much time and space is given to various segments. And so from that vantage point, we would probably say what takes up most time and space and what's most important in our service has to do with the preaching of the word and the worshiping of God as we sing praises 
uh, to him. And there's always thought that goes into that. You know, when we think of the songs that we sing, we try to minimize songs about God. And we like to focus on songs that are sung to God. So you can look for that, you know, where the words are, Lord, you are, as opposed to he is. So when you start singing, he is this, that, and the other, those are songs about God. I find it more difficult to worship God that way because I feel like I'm talking about him rather than singing to him. So we talk about that among the worship team. We don't just come up and play. You know, we're sort of thinking about these things. And sometimes we change the words so that it reflects that. But all of that is to say that um, wherever believers have gathered for worship, prayer has been central. And so there are times of prayer both before, during, and after our service that, that occurs. Our benediction is really a prayer. We have an opening prayer as we gather together. Our, our worship team, as well as our welcomer, our, song, uh, our uh, scripture reader, our candle lighter, our dance leader, and any of the dance members of the team, anyone that has anything to do with what goes on here in leading, generally we gather over here. And, uh, and we try to pray together. That's why sometimes you'll see the group is rather large, uh, and sometimes it's a little smaller. But we try to bathe what we're doing in prayer because prayer has been a central part of worship. And um, uh, I'm really desirous of seeing something happening on a weekly basis here where we are praying, studying the Word of God together, singing. Uh, and so I hope that that might grow and continue. But we'll see. Prayer has also been an indispensable part of corporate worship as well as of individual uh, discipline or piety. Uh, the importance of prayer is highlighted by Yeshua's own example, his own teaching, his own practice. And to be sure, there are difficulties when, uh, that arise when reflecting on prayer. There is the matter of faith. Uh, with regard to unbelief will always question the value of prayer. There's the matter of harmonizing certain biblical teaching on prayer with regard to praying. If God is sovereign in control of all things, how does our prayer work with regard to God's will is going to be uh, done? And we're encouraged to pray, thy will be done, but his will will be done. You know, So that gets uh, sort of complicated. And there's the matter of the charismatic and Pentecostal influences. I bring that up because that's really big uh, in our area, in our community, uh, and uh, in our world. But that's not to say that's the only problem, but it is a, a, a problem that needs to be searched out. What do the scriptures really, really say um, about that? So on the one hand, you can have very dull praying where there's hardly any prayer because, well, what difference does it make? kind of an attitude. And then you can have a kind of prayer that claims and attempts to uh, sort of determine what God's will will be rather than to discover what God's will will be, you know. And so there are, there are problems that need to be direct, addressed with regard to the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, the name it and claim it kind of stuff, the casting out of demons, the binding and loosing and and uh, the thus saith the Lord kind of stuff. That's not what we want to go on here. And, um, and then the other challenge that we face is that Scripture nowhere presents a unified explanation of prayer. There's no one place to go that will tell us about prayer. Prayer is sort of scattered throughout the entirety of God's Word, so we have to become 
something of systematic theologians, as I talked about the difference between biblical and systematic theology. You know, biblical theology is sort of going book by book and outlining what theological issues are addressed in a particular book of the Bible. When we deal with systematic theology, now we're operating the opposite way. We come up with themes, prayer, and now we want to find out what does the entirety of God's Word have to say about prayer. So biblical theology is answering the question, what does the book of Genesis say about prayer? Systematic theology is saying prayer, what we learn about prayer is the following, and we could be going anywhere uh, in God's Word. So that's a challenge because there's no one place we can go where everything about prayer is sort of explained and uh, uh, articulated. So what is prayer? We then talked about, uh, that's just sort of introductory, then we talked about what is prayer. On the one hand, prayer, for the most part, is human speech that is addressed to God. It's not the only thing about prayer. Prayer can in be, um, prayer can include silent reflection. It can include meditation. It can it, it include musing, um, etc. But what we're concerned about is what kind of verbal usage do we employ when we pray with uh, one another. So having said the above, that doesn't mean that prayer then is devoid of emotion. Speech expresses emotion. So we see in the scriptures, there's cries for help. There's exclamations of joy. There's manifestations of depression in the Psalms as the psalmist is praying and he's expressing his emotions. There is the gesture of love. And, but in our study, we're really focusing on prayer as speech addressed to God. I like the acronym ACTS as a basis upon which I go through the variety of um, prayer disciplines. So, for example, the A in ACTS stands for adoration. So I like to start out my prayer praying by expressing my adoring of the Lord. And I think about the characteristics of God, and I praise him for those characteristics. And sort of as I praise him for those characteristics, I think about how those characteristics of God have been extended to me, how he's been loving and kind to me, how he's been a guide and a director to me, how he's been a provider uh, for me, how he has led me, how he has encouraged me, how he has saved me, all of these things that have to do with the character of God I sort of then think about how that character has made a difference in my life personally, in my family's life, and in the lives of those that I interact with, minister to, uh, etc. Then I think about confession, because confession reminds me of my sinfulness. It reminds me that I always need to express to God my sorrow for my failings and my weaknesses, uh, some of which I'm not aware of, some of which... I don't want to be aware of, but it sort of sneaks up on me, and I know that it's there, and so I just say, Lord, I don't want to talk about this, but I bring it before you. And then there are other things where I say, I know this was really a stubborn act on my part, or a belligerent act, or a manipulative act, um, and so I need you to forgive me. And I'm always encouraged by First John. Uh, 1-9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
the more one comes to grips with the character of God, I think I preached on this briefly, but the more, especially with the last message on Isaiah saying, holy, 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 and then it leads him to say, I am ruined, you know. So the more we reflect on the character of God, the greater sense of reality we have about just how unlike God we are. And as we become more and more aware of how unlike God we are, that ought to lead us to confess to him that reality in a way that we know it about ourselves. And I find that when that happens in my life, it leads me to realize just how merciful God is and compassionate. And in his mercy and his compassion and grace, there's also been transformation along the way. So that's sort of the circular way things happen with me is I think of my sin, I think of God's grace, and then I'm reminded of how his grace has begun a transformative process in my life. And that gives me cause to give thanks. So that leads me to thank God for what he has done in my life, not just for the things that he's granted, but for the work that he has done. And uh, one of the things that's first and foremost in my life in terms of giving thanksgiving for is simply the calling God has placed on my heart and the people God has put in my life. And, uh, and then lastly, I usually conclude my praying with supplication. It's at that point that I now ask God uh, for his help or I ask God that he might uh, help others. And that's why this is my feelings now and um, that I want to share with you. I believe that everybody that is a member, regular attender, is a part of Beth Ariel, ought to be getting all of our prayer requests. That's how I feel. If somebody has something that they want prayer for, everybody in the congregation should pray for them. Uh, that's why we're here. That's why we're a community. That's why we're a family, so that we can pray, among other things, for one another. If there are confidential prayers, well, that's a whole other matter. I'm not saying there's never room for confidentiality. I'm only saying there ought not to be a prayer team to pray for the general needs of the congregation. Everybody in the congregation should be praying for it. If you find, and I understand this too, that there's just too much. I mean, this thing comes in. I can't read it. I understand that. And that's where we, are, we try, Mary Lou particularly, put it in one, two sentences at the most, you know, three sentences. But that, you know, that's part of the learning process. Not all of us have arrived. You know, but when you, we give so many details, people don't want to be bogged down with the details. You just want to know what would you like me to pray about? What is the need that you have? I don't need to know the details. God know, knows them. You just need to tell me, pray for my aunt so-and-so because she went in the hospital and she needs prayer. It doesn't really matter what it is that's prayed for, whether it's her foot or hand, her head or whatever. It doesn't, re it doesn't really matter. You know, so-and-so had to go into the hospital. That's not a good thing. And so let's pray that she'll get well. They'll be able to treat her. So we pray for Aunt whoever that uh, they'll get well. That's all we need to know, you know. If you need help, that's a whole other story. Now you need to come to the elders and say, you know, I need a ride here. I need something here. I need some help. We have a benevolent fund. I need some finances. And you just come to us. You ask us for that. And we are extremely generous. You know, our elders are want to give. And our congregation is very generous. They want to give to help people. I'm generally the one, I'll be honest, I'm generally the one that says, wait, 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 wait. You know, if we keep giving, 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 sometimes what we're doing is we're enabling. 
And so we're not helping resolve the problem that the individual has. So we need to also inquire when things are pervasive, when things are ongoing, you know, and repetitive, we need to step back and say, maybe there's something we need to get engaged with with you to help you uh, not have to be dependent upon the benevolent fund. That's not to say we've had a lot of that, but occasionally that arise, arises, and it's very hard for some of the guys and the elders to say no, you know, because they just love everyone so much and they want to share. But I always remind them, this isn't our money to do with as we want. If you want to help someone out of your own pocket, you could do that. You don't have to ask for my permission or my input. But when it's benevolent money, now we have to keep in mind people are giving for benevolent needs and we need to do that responsibly. So we're in the process and it's all slow because every, all of the ministries here have need for redefining and for some kind of basis or explanation or description about what we do, how we do it. And uh, so that, that's one of those areas. But my point in bringing that up is only to say that um, when there are prayer requests, if we keep it down to a minimum, there's no reason why everyone, whoever's in our congregation, that's what it means to be part of our family. It's, I expect you're going to be in prayer for me. I expect you're going to be giving to this congregation out of your financial resources as the Lord enables you to give. I'm expecting you're going to use your gifts and your abilities to serve in the congregation. I expect that you're going to be desiring others to come to the congregation. I mean, that's why we're a part. That's why we're a part of this. So in terms of prayer requests, everybody in our, that says Beth Ariel is my home congregation, this is my congregation, my family, they should be in prayer for one another. That doesn't mean that you call the person up and you say, hey, I was praying for you. Is everything okay? You know, we don't want to badger people. We just want to pray for them. If they want you to know personally, they'll talk to you. And they'll say, hey, I have this happen. Would you? I, want, I need to talk to you about it. If they don't, you don't need to seek them out. You just pray for them. And you lift them up before the Lord. Now, the, what I'm talking about in terms of a prayer ministry team, that has to do with what we do up here when after service we want to say, if anyone has any personal needs about which they would like prayer this morning, our prayer team members are going to be up here. Come and join them. They're looking forward to praying with you. The same rules apply. We'll talk more about this in the next session. Same rules apply if they, you know, we don't want them to go on and on and on and on to tell you about that need because, number one, there are other people you need to pray with. So if you're going to spend 15 minutes with this person, you're not going to have any time for the next person. And the other thing is we don't want them just praying with you. There are other people to meet. And as they meet other people, those people could be ministering too. It's not only about this one moment when you pray. We don't know how God's going to use all the members of the congregation to minister to these people. So if you think it's only this moment when we pray that that's what God is doing, well, then you're very narrow in your understanding of how God ministers to people. This is just one moment. And so we don't have to pray long. You know, we only have to pray. We want to lift them up. They're coming to us because they want to know someone who will stand with them. And in standing with them, it helps to make God more personable. We all know that. You can pray in silence and you can pray privately. But sometimes when you pray, if someone prays for you, you just feel a sense of encouragement. Perhaps even that God really is with you simply because there's a person with you. But when you're in isolation, sometimes it's hard to realize God is really with you. 
And, uh, and that's just true about relationships. You know, if you go through life uh, independent of any relationship with another person, it's very hard. It's very lonely. But when you have relationships with others, then life is a little bit easier to handle. Prayer is like that, too, because let's face it, God is one that um, he just doesn't stand here in front of us. You know, sometimes we even wonder, is he really there? Is he really hearing our prayers? I mean, you could be in a point of very a desperate need where it appears as if God has abandoned you. Elijah felt that way. Moses felt that way. Many characters uh, in the scripture feel that way. And we all have felt that way, whether we want to admit it or not, at one point. And when that person puts their hand on your shoulder and says, can I just pray with you? You know that all of a sudden, you know, all those moments when I thought God was not hearing me or God was not with me. No, he really is with me. And so that opportunity to pray doesn't have to be long just has to be meaningful. And then when they have fellowship with others, what you have just done will be built upon and it will be enhanced. But if that's all they experience and you've held them up for 15, 20, 30 minutes, now it becomes burdensome and awkward, especially if they're new and they don't really know you. So these are things we will we'll talk more about. But I, I'm only talking now in terms of praying for uh, for one another. Um, and then we took a look at prayer in the Hebrew scriptures. It's in the Hebrew scriptures, prayer is an integral part of a relationship with God. All the, uh, righteous individuals are engaged in prayer. Uh, prayer is seen as basic to one's, uh, religious life. Uh, there's no record of prayer being instituted in the Mosaic law. Um, the only place where pl prayer is explicitly commanded in the Hebrew Scriptures is where we are commanded to confess our sin. In the book of Leviticus, uh, it, it occurs in chapter 5, chapter 16, chapter 26. It almost appears, and maybe I shouldn't say almost, it does appear, that uh, the godly individuals, the righteous individuals, will pray. It's taken as such an assumption that it's never really discussed. You know, you just see righteous people doing it. But there's never even in the Mosaic law, make sure that you pray. Make sure you pray before you go to sleep. Make sure you pray when you, you know, you don't see anything like that. Uh, there is a statement about one's love for God and devotion to his word. You know, the Shema, when you stand, when you arise, when you go to sleep. But it doesn't say anything about prayer. That's all about the study and understanding of God's word. So it's taken as a given. It's not spoken about because it's just understood that the righteous pray. And uh, so, therefore, the prayer is not treated as part uh, of the law. So what did the believers in the Hebrew Scriptures pray about? Well, there are a number of things. They prayed for divine guidance. We looked at uh, Eliezer, who asked God for guidance when he was looking for a wife for Isaac, and it would be Rebecca. And his prayer is very interesting. He says, I'm standing at the well, God. You know, I'm at this well. And... Uh, uh, while I'm standing here, the woman who comes to draw water for her camels will then draw water for my camels. You know, that's the one. She'll offer to do it. It's like, well, when is that going to happen? And so this woman comes, Rebecca, and says, oh, can I draw water for your, for your camels? And uh, the Hebrew is very interesting because the, um, the conjunction and comes up over and over again. So it says, and Rebecca came 
to the well and she drew water and she brought the water to her camels and she drew more water and she brought more water to Eliezer's camels and and the idea is that the idea that is conveyed by it is she did this for a long time it took gallons and gallons and gallons of water because how many camels did Eliezer have he probably had a train of them you know, they could have had six of them, maybe something like that. Each one is going to drink how many gallons of water. She's going to be there a long time. And so there aren't too many women that I guess would be willing to do that. But the one who would would be Isaac's uh, wife. And when uh, when he does that, when she does that, Eliezer's prayer to God is, is this the one? <laughs> you know, it says he's thinking, is this the one? And then finally he realizes it must be. And then he gives her a ring and and then the uh, betrothal takes place. They pray for provision, that God would provide for their needs. They pray for deliverance from disease. They pray for deliverance from natural dangers and disasters. They pray for deliverance from their enemies. They pray for God's favor. I think it's very interesting in Numbers chapter 6 that um, we're going to look at this Sunday. Uh, before Rosh Hashanah, and that'll be our last liturgical element that we've been, uh, that we practice here at Beth Ariel. But um, in Numbers chapter 6, where the benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord causes his face to shine upon you. You know, prayer for God's favor. Every service was to close with the high priest praying God's favor upon uh, his people. And then the concluding line, I can't wait to share some of my thoughts on this. But the concluding line of that benediction, which we don't recite, but is sort of explanatory, is also kind of neat. Because then the section uh, concludes with, um, so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. You know, So the, pronoun- the pronunciation of God's name, may the Lord bless you. And the Lord says, and I will bless them. Talk about the grace of God. You know, people that say the Hebrew Scriptures is about law and the New Testament is about grace. I mean, that is so foreign to the biblical record. You know, that's sort of our very superficial way of reading the Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures are filled with grace. And in fact, the failure is to see law as grace. You know, we see law as something oppressive. You know, and how many times I remember being in a church where people would say to me, aren't you glad you're no no longer under the law because it was so oppressive, you know? Uh, Well, the Old Testament saints didn't see it that way. What they saw as oppressive was the rabbinical restrictions that were placed uh, on the law. But the law in and of itself, Paul tells us, is holy, just, and good. But yet we just don't want to believe that. We want the law to be bad, unrighteous, and, you know, whatever. Uh, and therefore to raise sort of like a straw man. And therefore we elevate the New Testament over the Old Testament. And that's why um, I was so taken aback many, many years ago when Dr. Daniel Fuchs, who was the former president of Chosen People Ministries, a wonderful scholar and a great, great human being, had uh, been teaching. And I remember in one of the seminars that he gave, and I happened to... um, attended. It was in a church and he held up the the Bible and he said, uh, I forget why he did this or what the whole context was, but the one thing I remember was that he held up the Bible and he talked about this is the worst page in all the Bible. And he holds it up and it says the New Testament. 
you know? And he said, the reason that's the worst page is because it makes us think there are actually two testaments. No, there's only one testament, the word of God. And so to suggest that the Old Testament is bad and it's the law and it's what we've been redeemed from uh, is to fail to understand the Hebrew scriptures and to really understand uh, the revelation that's there. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And as the name of the Lord is pronounced upon the Israelites, the Lord will bless them. I mean, what more do we need uh, to see that the Hebrew scriptures were intended to convey the grace of God who is compassionate, whose loving kindness is everlasting. It's all throughout uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the chesed of God, the loving kindness of the Lord. For some reason, uh, many in our churches don't want to see that or have ignored it. But then when we think about the manner of prayer in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, we saw that there, w- there was an essential relationship between prayer and sacrifice. And thus, when the individual Israelite went to the temple to offer the sacrifice, he offered the sacrifice, if it was to be of any benefit, with a prayerful and relational attitude toward God. If he just went thinking, okay, here's the animal, I'm going home now, and as if that really did anything, well, it doesn't do anything. Uh, It only did something on a temporary basis if they came with a prayerful and devoted and committed kind of heart. That's why the rabbis um, understood, and rightly so, that there were two aspects to the atonement. There was an objective aspect and a subjective aspect. The objective aspect was the blood on the altar. The subjective aspect was the attitude of the individual when he brought the blood to be, or the animal, whose blood would be sprinkled upon the altar. It was both and. There had to be faith, the subjective, and there had to be the objective. And what made me think about that uh, over the years was a time that I was handing out literature at Tufts University in Massachusetts, and um, the rabbi of Hillel on campus was not too happy with me and whoever I was with at the time doing this. So one of the Jewish students came down and said, the rabbi would like to see you. And I thought, that's great. I'd like to talk to the rabbi. So I went into his office and the rabbi sits down, invites me in. He says, I just don't get it. You're, you're Jewish. I said, yes, I am Jewish. And he says, what do you see in Christianity that makes it so superior to Judaism? And, um, and you know, I, whether I just happened to be reading something about it or reflecting on it, I don't know. But at that moment, I said, well, well, Rabbi, you know, it's really quite simple. I said, the, uh, what is lacking in Judaism is provided for us through Jesus acknowledging him as the Messiah. Because the Hebrew scriptures are clear that atonement for sin involves an objective and a subjective element for the atonement to be a benefit. In the Hebrew scriptures, there was blood on the altar in the temple, and it had to be offered by an individual whose heart recognized what God was providing for him and that he was doing this in faith and in trust. And so what Judaism lacks today is an objective aspect to the atonement. Today, the rabbis say that the thing that provides atonement is tefillah, tzedakah, 
and teshuvah. Tefillah, prayer or worship. Tzedakah, righteousness or good deeds. And teshuvah, repentance. So those are all subjective aspects that I don't disagree with. You know, the scripture tells us that if we're going to come to the Lord, we have to come with repentance. We have to repent of our sin. If we're going to know him, we have to repent of our sin. Repent and be saved, the scripture says. And I agree, we have to be worshipers. So I agree with the idea that we need to be engaged in prayer or worship. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what worship is. Worship is a life lived in devotion to God out of love for him. Worship is not just what goes on one day a week in our congregation. It is a life that is lived as unto the Lord. So that what we do is determined by loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is what I am doing an expression of my love for God? Or is it something else? So I say I have no argument with the fact that we need to be repenting. I have no argument with the fact we need to be worshipers. And I have no argument with the fact we need to be doing good things. You know, um, Yeshua himself was asked, what works must we do in order to be saved? And Yeshua said, believe on the one whom he has sent. That's a good thing to do, to believe on the one whom he has sent. Call it what you want. You want, don't want to use the word works because you don't want to raise the specter of suggesting we're saved by works. I understand. Don't use the word works. Whatever you want to call believing in the one whom he has sent is a good thing. Whatever it is, it's a good act. It's a good choice. It's a good decision. You don't want to say a good work. All right, don't use the word work. But whatever it is, it's a good thing we should do. Believe on the one whom he has sent. So I said to the rabbi, I have no question here with any of these subjective elements that Judaism holds as a mechanism by which we please God. My problem is that Judaism no longer has an objective aspect to the atonement. There's no blood on the altar. There's no sacrifice. There's no temple to sacrifice it in. Why is that? is the number one question. And why would you think that the lack of it is okay when the scripture makes clear it is essential for an atonement to be of any efficacious value? And so I said, the thing that makes faith in Yeshua as Messiah superior to every religion, but we're talking about Judaism, is we have an objective aspect to the atonement. The blood of Messiah cleanses us from all sin. So, um, the, uh, the idea here with regard to the manner of prayer is that, first of all, there's an essential relationship between prayer and sacrifice. So when the worshiper came and sacrificed, he had to have a right attitude and it's, it's accepted and just take it for granted. Oh, what did the rabbi say? <laughs> I, you know, I don't remember per se. You know, you always remember these encounters. But, you know, he, he didn't say, oh, I need to invite the Lord into my life too. You know, when you, when you sort of lay the gauntlet down, uh, the rabbi is in a real predicament, you know, because he can't argue with that, right? There's nothing to argue with. There's no time. All he can say is, oh, well, I just disagree. I mean, you know, there's nothing he can argue with. You have to answer the question. The only way he could uh, 
uh, argue against it is to say, you're wrong with your premise. There's no objective. But then why was there sacrifices? That's, that is objective. It stands outside of ourselves. So why did the high priest once a year put his hands on the animal and confess the sins of the people? I mean, what's going on? It's an objective thing outside of the people that is done for them, you know. So a lot of times, too, the rabbis are very, um, they're secularized. And so they think in terms of, uh, you know, being good and a good citizen and you know, it's been a long time since I sat in a synagogue and heard a message these days. But I can imagine, you know, wh what you oftentimes are hearing because what can be presented? And forget about just the, the, the rabbis. I mean, any religious context, what is really being presented to people as uh, a given direction as to how they can be right with God? As Whenever you have, as a means of getting right with God, the effort of humanity, it can never be um, satisfying because in our honesty, we know we don't have it. I mean, you can just say, I don't need to have it. <laughs> you know, I don't have to have it all together. But in the final analysis of things, we all know we're not good enough even living up to our own standards and whatever the standard is. I mean, we can even lower the standard. We don't even live up to a lowered standard and we all know it deep down inside. So, um, but people don't think about it very long. You know, I mean, if you stay there too long, it's got to be utterly depressing because what's the answer? So you have to sort of move on from there and just get distracted by life itself. That's where evangelism comes in. Evangelism ulti ultimately is a disruption in people's thinking. It's a disruption in, in people's lives, you know, because they're happy to just go to work, come home, say hi to the kids, and go to sleep, you know. But all of a sudden, somebody steps into their path, you know, and says, have you thought about what may happen the day that you no longer get up, you know? Um, is there something that's beyond this life that you need to prepare for as much as what is in this life? You know, is there? Do you sense that there might be? Could it be possible? And if it is, maybe it's worth our while to think about it a little, a little longer than we might otherwise think about it. And you just hope that, you know, people will not allow the distractions to take away that moment where they say, you know, there very well might be something else after this life. And if there is, I'm really not ready for it. And so how could I get, how can I get ready for it? And everybody's in a different stage, you know. But um, so prayer and sacrifice were essential. Where there is a disconnect, such as in Eliezer, there's no sacrifice when he prays for God for help. Um, the lessons to be learned is that prayer was not dependent upon the animal sacrifice for it to be beneficial uh, to, the, to the individual. Rather, the sacrificial system was instituted to teach God's people that as ones who are alienated from him, there's only one way 
to approach him, and that is by the atoning process he provides. And uh, the ceremonial then ritual of the Old Testament and in the Mosaic Law set forth not only the need for an atonement to approach God, but also the need for an intercessor. The high priest was not only one who provided the atonement by placing the blood, but he also was the only one that could do that for us. You know, I couldn't go in and just put the animal on the altar. The priests were the ones that had to do that in my place. So in that sense, they were mediators for me. They were intercessors for me. And the whole issue of mediation and intercessor interceding raises the issue of prayer. And so these are sort of connecting uh, the connecting links. So this leads us to where we uh, have come to. So in Scripture, we're just dealing with very general things about prayer. And then we'll conclude with some of the specifics with respect to the prayer ministry team, how we conduct ourselves in prayer. So first of all, the the object of prayer. To whom is prayer addressed? Prayer is, first of all, to be addressed to God. So prayer to saints, as wonderful as saints may have been, or any individual may have been, is uh, an impossibility for one simple reason. They just can't hear us. You know? I mean, when we uh, talk to those who have departed, we're really talking to ourselves. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know, I talk to myself all the time. How could you have said that in your sermon this morning? You know? I mean, I, I say things like that frequently enough. Um, and there's nothing wrong with thinking out loud, reflecting out loud, and speaking to someone who's departed as a means of, of consoling ourselves and of expressing ourselves. I, I don't find any, any problem with that. But in religious contexts, where there's the idea that somehow we can pray to someone or something that can't hear us then becomes sort of um, meaningless. So prayer is to be addressed to God. But while that is true, prayer is not a purely human activity. Though we said prayer that we're talking about is human speech, prayer is not merely our activity that we engage in. Rather, it is the result of a prior activity in which God himself has already worked in the human heart. You know, when when we think about salvation, we focus on um, the individual making a decision for the Lord. But the reality is God has already started a work before that individual has really come to that point where he has said, Lord, forgive me. Because none of us can become aware of our need unless God already awakens our soul to it. And so the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is simply that at that given point in time, God's prior work has not worked to such a degree that it has moved the individual to realize their need for him. And that's what regeneration is about. Regeneration is the making of the individual alive to God. That's one of the works of the Spirit of God, which is to make us alive to Him. When we become alive to Him, now we can truly cry out to Him. And we can truly engage in prayer as a, hum- as a completed activity. 
So prayer is addressed to God, but we're not on our own when we do that any more than we are in anything we do. I mean, life itself is a gift from God. We didn't just all of a sudden decide to breathe. Somehow when uh, life was forming in us, it wasn't just the result of natural uh, mechanisms that were going off in the cells, etc. But God was putting life into us. And so from beginning to end, what is, is ultimately uh, God at work. And so prayer is part of God at work in our lives. So it's the result of a prior work of God in our heart. Ultimately, prayer is meaningful because it's God working in and through us as we pray to him. So there's a co-joining. There's sort of a coming together of the human individual and the work and spirit of God to enable us to pray. And we don't even pray properly. I mean, to follow it through, we know from the book of Romans that it says, and the spirit of God prays with groanings we cannot utter. And the scripture says he intercedes in our behalf. So we pray and the spirit of God is energizing us to pray, but it's sort of a combined experience or activity and therefore it is subject to error and so the spirit of god then says he really didn't mean that what he meant to say to you is this you know and so it's very good on our behalf that we are not left on our own even in our praying uh, because we're praying all kinds of things that we think are the good things to pray for the spirit of god is saying you know that individual doesn't really know what they're praying. But you understand that. And so let me just make it clear what they meant was, you know, that kind of thing. But it is true. Uh, I mean, if somebody comes to me and shares with me a, a moment of struggle in their life, my initial reaction is to pray, Lord, take the struggle away. But God may be saying, but that's what I brought into that person's life because that's my plan for them. You know, okay, you know, but from my vantage point, I wouldn't want anyone to have that. And the Lord might say, you know, I understand that, but you don't see things the way I see things. And what I want from that person is exactly that. So, you know, um, that's the nature of being finite as opposed to being uh, omniscient. You know, when someone knows it all, you don't argue with that. You know, you simply step back and say, okay, I guess I'm, I have it wrong. And, but people try, and this gets into the charismatic issue, doesn't it? Where individuals say, God never wants us sick. Well, it's just not true. You know, God never wants us to struggle. It's just not true. Scripture says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And persecuted people struggle. You know, it may be a struggle as a victim, but it doesn't matter what it's for. It's a struggle. And uh, so we'll talk more about those things. But the point is, we, when we're praying for people, you know, keep in mind that what you think is best is not necessarily what God thinks. And be very, um, I'm very concerned when people say, the Lord told me this, or the Lord wants me to pray this. Um, I just think that's wrong. And I also think it's not true. Uh, people may have deep feelings about things, deep impressions, uh, but I've been in, around the block a long, long time, 
and I've been in places where people have prayed, this is what God has said, and it's just never come to pass. You know? So people can say what they want. It's very important that you are conscious of the fact that that's a human being that can make as, uh, as big a mistake as anyone can. No matter what they claim, no matter what they feel, always remember, these are human beings, and we're all subject to error. No matter what we say, it has to be evaluated by the Word of God. You have to be mature. Can't get sucked in to people's manipulating of others. Can't get sucked in to uh, people's uh, limited psychological uh, place. You know their psychological limitations as a way of of affecting people, how they pray, what they pray for. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go in, and. We have to be a, a people that simply bring people into the presence of God. And I'm not saying, you know, you can't uh, pray for the benefit of an individual. Like I said, if someone came in and said to me, I have this struggle, I would pray, Lord, please release them from the struggle. Please lift this struggle from their shoulders. But that doesn't mean he will. And it doesn't mean it's the best thing for him or the right thing. Uh, and that's why prayer is an activity of the Spirit of God. Uh, as well as us, and when I say as well as us, that's where the errors come in. And fortunately, he is praying despite what words we choose uh, in our behalf as well. Yeah. Well, we well, let's talk about that as we go down. But just very quickly, I would say, well, the fallacy is that he healed everyone. He just didn't. And uh, that's one fallacy. And the this, the second fallacy, the second fallacy, is that, for example, he didn't heal himself. When they say, physician, heal yourself, come down from the cross. Well, he didn't. He died. He suffered. And he experienced a violent overthrow of his life. True, he was resurrected, but not until after he suffered enormously. So, uh, and Paul says, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. So there's plenty of scriptures to show that uh, Yeshua did not heal everyone that came to him. And that not everyone that does come to him now is going to experience a healing. And ultimately, all of us will die. Um, so the ultimate deliverance will come when we're in heaven. Now, does that mean that he doesn't heal anyone? No, that's not true either. He certainly has healed people. And, and people have been healed in, through prayer. Um, and uh, there are individuals that have a particular ministry of healing. And those that I've encountered that I have felt were legitimate would never claim that every time they have prayed for people to be healed, they're always praying. They're always healed. That, that kind of statement reveals this person is lying because this just doesn't happen. But the individual says, you know, God has given me a special burden, concern for somebody for healing individuals, and I pray for people's healing, and I've seen many people healed, but I guarantee you that uh, they're not going to see everyone healed. And I've oftentimes said, if God is doing, why don't you go to the hospitals where they need you? Why, why don't you empty them out? Well, it doesn't happen because God doesn't heal everyone. Uh, he didn't then, and he, and he doesn't, doesn't today. No, because, and that's understandable, because his whole purpose in coming was to demonstrate he was the Messiah. Remember, when he initially heals, it's for the purpose of uh, demonstrating he's the Messiah. Then when he's rejected by the nation, his healing takes on a whole different context. It is on the basis of personal faith 
because now it becomes a symbol of contrast with the nation that has not exhibited faith. And the other thing Messiah does is in each instance, at that point, after he's rejected, Matthew 12, in each instance, he, the faith must be there. And the reason faith must be there is because there are contrasts with the nation in which faithlessness was exhibited. And that's what he points out among his own disciples, you know, where he'll say, are you of such little faith? Well, those are his disciples. Those are his believers. He says to Peter, if you didn't doubt, you wouldn't have sunk. The reason for that is because he's setting up a contrast with what he expects of his followers and what he's getting from his own people. And that's not to say that the, the presence of a faith necessitates healing or a miracle. It only what doubt does is it rejects the will of God in a person's life. You know, so the doubting is not what hampers healing. You know, God is not, you know, I'm holding out on you unless you believe I'm not going to heal you. There are plenty of people who as unbelievers have been prayed for and were healed. And some of whom never come to faith. But God has answered our prayers and they've restored people. We've all seen that. We've all prayed for friends and family members and we've seen they've gotten better. And no doubt, you know, there have been instrumental means, doctors and other things. But God has heard our prayers and he's answered them. And those people don't have faith. And those people don't even go on necessarily to believe, at least not initially. So, um, so doubt does not restrain God from anything. He's sovereign. And faith does not manipulate God to do whatever we want because he's sovereign. So that brings us back to the challenge of prayer. We're not guaranteed of anything in prayer. So what is prayer? Prayer is faith and trust in God that he hears us. But it doesn't mean he's going to answer us according to our own desires. But faith means, but I keep turning to him. Like Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. If we don't have that, we don't have faith. That's what faith is about. If we expect that God is our butler who does whatever we ask, well, then I don't see why God would answer any of our prayers because he's nobody's servant. We are his servants. Anyway, I'm now preaching. I'm trying to get back to the teaching mode. But, uh, uh, but we're back to the object of prayer. God is the object. It's amazing what one can get out of a very basic and simple truth. I've got about 10 minutes and I'll, uh, get you guys out of here, hopefully. Um, the the second thing here are some assumptions about God which underlie prayer. We've talked about uh, some of them along the way. First of all, there is God's omniscience. Of course, omniscience means all-knowing. Science, you see that? Omni is all, and science is the word knowledge. So he is all-knowledgeable. So all-knowledge. So prayer presupposes the ability of God to hear and understand us and to know what we really mean when we can't quite articulate it and put it into words. And I'm not, I'm not speaking about tongues as babble, you know. I'm talking about, we, you know, people ask us to pray about something, and I don't even know where to begin with that one. So, Lord, just be with this individual. You know their, the depth of their heart. You know what they're struggling with. You know what their need might be. Um, but what we know, God is all-knowing, so we know that he hears us, he understands us, no matter what language we speak, no matter what prayer is offered, no matter what the circumstances are, he knows all the ins and outs about it that we do not. 
And so knowing that God is omniscient, knowing that, oh, I'm ahead of myself here. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. So knowing that God is uh, omniscient not only gives us assurance that our prayer is heard, which assurance we always have. We always know God hears us. But also that prayer is to be offered in sincerity and in faith. He knows all things. So he knows what's going on in your heart and your mind when you're praying too. So when you're, when you're praying, he knows where you're at. And whatever it is you're praying about, he also knows all of that. You know? So it's not like, you know, God is unaware of any part of the prayer moment. He knows it all inside and out. He knows it much better than us. So that gives us confidence. I can come to him because if I don't know what I really want to say, he already knows. And if I don't know all the specifics about which I'm praying, he knows all that too. And he knows what's beneficial, etc. And uh, so we would also uh, think of God's omnipotence. By omnipotence, potency is the word for power. He's all-powerful. So prayer to God is also marked by the knowledge that the one to whom prayer is being offered has unlimited power. So when we say, God, you know you can do that, he says, I know. You know, we're not telling him anything he doesn't know or we're not affirming something he can't do. So th thus one is to pray in faith. And we don't have to fall short of praying ineffectively by placing limits on what God can do because he could do whatever. You know. But we have to be careful not to give false hopes to people either. Someone has a terminal illness. We don't want to pray uh, Lord, raise them up from, from uh, their terminal state. But we might pray, Lord, would you heal this person so that they might not be sick any longer? We can pray like that. And I think in a way, uh, the, the expression in a humble sort of manner is appropriate. We don't command God to do anything. He allows us to even come into his presence. But we can ask. And we can ask as our Heavenly Father, but what child demands of their father anything? And that father-son, father-daughter, father-child relationship is then not somehow broken or compromised. A child does not demand anything of their father. A child may beseech their father, may request from their father, may um, ask from their father. But the moment they demand, then I think the relationship is misunderstood. And the same thing is with us. So when we have these prayers, Lord, you will do this. Well, you know, no, I won't. You know? But if we say, Lord, would you do this for this person? You know how they're struggling. You know how they're, they're hurting. You know how difficult this is for them. Would you make a difference in their life? And, you know, that I think is um, an appropriate way to bring God into a context without um, expressing demand while at the same time not expecting God to do anything. Faith is expectant, but it also realizes we're not omniscient. And thus, whatever our heart's desire might be may not be what God's intentions are. So thus, one is to pray in faith not to fall short uh, by placing limits on what God can do. But on the other hand, 
not demanding that he does what we want him to do. God is also sovereign. By sovereignty is meant God's the ultimate cause of all things. And because he's the ultimate cause of all things, he's in control of all things. If he's in control of all things, it's because he's the ultimate cause of all things. So prayer is based on the belief that God providentially controls the entire world. So not one hair of our heads goes uncounted. Unless, of course, you don't have too many. <laughs> I was talking to Adam. He's just sitting behind you because he shaved. <laughs> Not one uh, what falls to the ground. What is it? The size? Sparrow. Sparrow. Falls to the ground without the Lord knowing. You know? Not one snowflake is exactly alike because they're all crafted individually. Not, uh, you know, everything that manifests individuality does so because that's what God wanted. And that's what God has determined for it uh, to be. So because God's in control of all things, we're exhorted to give thanks in all circumstances. You know, Paul says, I, am, I have learned to be content the King James says, I remember somebody preached this years and years ago, I have learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. That's even Louisiana. Now, those in Louisiana may feel that's okay. All right, you know, Arkansas, I don't know. You know. Pick a state you don't like. You know, I can't imagine living in Idaho. You know. But, of course, that's not what he means by state. It's just a joke. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Why? Because God's in control of all the circumstances. Now, that's, by, that's being said by a guy that was thrown into a pit, chained to a Roman soldier, and was, you know, beat how many times, shipwrecked three times, and all the problems he went through. He said, I've learned to be content, whatever condition, whatever situation I'm in. Why? Because ultimately God's in control of whatever I'm in. So when... Paul says, in whatever state I'm in, whatever means whatever. All things means all things. Things like society, God is in control of. Things like the developments in human personalities, God's in control of. We may not like each other's personalities, but he's in control of it. Like all events, world events, floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, all, God's in control of it all. I know, no. you'll say, well, how do you reconcile? I, you know, I've come to that point in my life where I don't try to reconcile everything. I've come to learn, at least to some degree, to live with the tensions, with the mysteries. I don't know how God's in control, and yet we as human individuals have moral responsibility. I don't know the answer to that. But the answer isn't that somehow his sovereignty is limited and our independence is enlarged. The answer is we don't know. But... As uh, theologians have said, we're to proclaim the full counsel of God. And the scripture teaches he's in control of all things. And the scripture says, whosoever will. You know, So I don't try to reconcile things, but I try to at least uh, state what the scriptures and the, and the writers of scripture themselves say. Consciousness of the su supreme authority of God leads to the prayer of unconditional commitment. It means that ultimately we can conclude our prayers by saying, so Lord, help me to submit myself to your will. And that's Messiah's prayer. 
Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Lord, if it's your will, take this cup from me, but not my will. Now, when he says that, that's not a prayer of resignation. It's a prayer of submission. When he says that, that thy will be done, he's praying, Lord, I am submitting to your will. So when we say, Lord, heal this individual or do this or that, that we think is the good thing, but ultimately, Lord, your will be done. I will submit myself to your will in this matter. So it also needs to be remembered that not only is all that occurs according to the sovereign will of God, but because God is good, all that occurs according to the sovereign will of God is good. Because God only will do things that are good. So how do you resolve evil? I don't, again, there's one of those mysteries. You know, I could tell you, uh, we could talk about evil. We talk about evil things, you know, but how is it that even evil will work itself out for a good thing, as Paul says? All things work together for good. I don't know how God does that. It doesn't mean all things are good, but all things ultimately in the plan of God work toward his will, which is good. And so maybe we could put it that way. So when we pray, if we really believe God is sovereign, and if we really believe his will will therefore come to pass as he determines it, and if we really believe that God is all good, then we can sort of be anxious for nothing. And we can then also allow the peace of God, which passes all understanding, to guard our hearts and our minds in Messiah Yeshua. Because God's in control, you know. He isn't in control. That person who hurt me is not in control. I'm not even in control. As I make decisions, Lord, help me, even in the decision that I might make. He is ultimately in control. Today I had a long conversation with Joel. He was getting really stressed out because he wanted to take a class. It was going to cost $3,000. He didn't have the money. Where is it going to come from? I said, you know what, Joel? When I get into those stressful things, I sort of step back. I remember God's in control of all things. I don't have experienced the stress over this. And I can allow God to sort of unfold his plan for me. And maybe it isn't for you to take that class right now. If the idea of coming up with three grand is so stressful, well, then maybe that's not what you ought to be thinking about. Maybe what you should be thinking about is God's in control of this thing. Give it to him. Pray to him. And if you don't end up taking the class this time, class isn't going anywhere. Your whole life is yet ahead of you. And maybe it's next year. You know, God has a way of having his plans operate at a certain time. I think I've told you, you know, back in 1985-ish or so, twice we were asked to come out to California. And uh, once it was down in Orange County, once it was up here to work with Lewis here at Beth Ariel. And both those times that we came out, we visited, and we met uh, some of the people at that time and saw what was going on, we, we felt, no, this just wasn't it. And there was a part of me that said, how can I say no to Southern California, you know, uh, especially when I was only like 30 years old, you know, but, uh, but it was no. And, um, but yet here we are now, you know, in uh, 30, 20 some odd years later. Um, so God had a plan, you know, and that's not to say I was looking to come out there and I, you know, no, we decided not to, it wasn't the right time. And it certainly didn't appear to be at the time. It wasn't. But my only point is that, you know, God has a way of working things out at the time that he would have it. So you know, I said, Joel, just hang back, man, and relax, and let God take you through some of these things. 
And so the prayer of Yeshua in the garden is, uh, thy will be done. By the way, Psalm 40, verse 8, reflects a similar attitude. But failure to submit oneself to the sovereign will of God always ought to lead to another kind of prayer. And that kind of prayer is a prayer for forgiveness of our sin, you know, which is the unwillingness to submit to the sovereign will of God. So let me just do one more section. I'm a little longer than I wanted to be. And we'll pick up with the next Roman numeral, which is the role of Yeshua. But let, let me go to this, uh, this question here. We uh, try not to take too much time. But prayer to which member of the triunity of God? First of all, uh, because each member of the triunity of God is God. By the way, another way of referring to the triunity is a strange word. I've still not been able to grasp it. But in believing circles, Christian circles, church circles, you know, um, we use it all the time or it's used all the time. But no one really knows what it means. So we, th we speak about the triunity of God or we, or we use a phrase like, I'm talking about the Godhead. You know, and it's like, Godhead, <laughs> what does that really mean, you know? I mean, what's the difference between the word Godhead and God? You know, I'm talking about God. I'm talking about the Godhead, you know? Um, but in theological circles, you know, when someone says, I'm talking about the Godhead, immediately we think of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? But that's not really what the word means. But we sort of know what it means because we're the only people that use such a word. When's the last time we saw that word used in a commercial? You know, or heard on, on the radio or something, unless it's Christian radio. You know. um, it's just a strange word, but we use it very often. And we all sort of think we know what it means, but we never really do know what it means. But it, it just occurred to me, but I don't use it here. <laughs> but in any case, because each member of the triune, triunity, or each member of the Godhead is God, it's ultimately appropriate to pray to either member. But generally, Yeshua encouraged individuals to look to him directly for help. You see this in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. You see it in Matthew chapter 8, verses 24 to 27. You see it in Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. I'll just say that one more time. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. Also in Matthew chapter 8, verses 24 to 27. And then in Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. And in such instances, Yeshua was encouraging individuals to pray to him for help, as one would pray to God. But since, whoops. Oh, I see. Okay. So, um, since prayer to God is always proper, then any of the persons may be addressed because the essence of God the nature of God is undivided it is also proper to address prayer to the triune God without making a distinction of the persons you know? so you can address your prayers to well uh, oh Lord you know you can address your prayers Yeshua would you, you we could direct our prayers of oh, spirit of God would you you know uh, or thank you, or whatever. We can address our prayers to any member of the triune God because each person is God. But because each of the persons are undivided in that they are one God, we can address our prayers to all three at one time by simply praying, Lord of the universe. 
But when we say Lord of the universe, we might just be thinking of God. <laughs> you know? So, however, prayer is ordinarily addressed to the Father in the name of Messiah, which means on the basis of the authority of Yeshua as Messiah, in the power of the Spirit of God. So the way it seems to work is the Spirit of God energizes us in order to pray. And as I said, prayer is a, an integral connection between God and the individual. And the initiating of prayer begins with God. And thus, as he works on our hearts, he empowers and enables us to pray. And as we pray, our words are not necessarily quite accurate. And so the Spirit of God is interceding for us with words we cannot utter in Romans 8. And our prayer, as the Spirit of God empowers us to pray and even takes our words and makes them clearer, are addressed to the Father. And so Messiah tells us, pray our Father who is in heaven. And we do that in the name or on the basis of the authority of Messiah with respect to all that he is and all that he has done to enable us to have a relationship with the Father, which is reflected in our prayer, praying. And thus prayer becomes this circular thing. And I think that's part of the meaning that Paul uh, has when he says pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean that all you are to do is to sit and meditate, reflect, pray, read scripture, whatever. When he says pray without ceasing, he, mean, he means to say that prayer ought to be an integral part of our life. And as it becomes that integral part of our life, it is a, a, a discipline, a work, um, a activity that is initiated by God and brings us to God. And thus, in that sense, it's an unceasing discipline and an unceasing experience. So what we'll do next week is we'll look at the role of Yeshua in prayer. We're now after nine, so let me conclude in prayer. If anyone needs to go, um, by all means, please feel welcome to do that. And if there are any questions, we can uh, kind of talk about them uh, as well. So let me pray and we'll go from there. Father, we thank you for uh, your lesson to us this night. We are grateful for your welcoming us into your very presence and for your desiring of us to be praying and conversing and speaking to you as well as listening and receiving from you. And so, Father, we are grateful uh, for what you have helped us to understand uh, better this night. Be with each and every one as they travel home. Give them traveling mercies, I pray. And I also pray that as we reflect and study and uh, think further about what prayer is, that you would help us to pray better and better and to pray more effectively. And then to help our congregation to become more of a praying congregation, both here and within the facility, as well as at home and within our community. So we thank you for this night. 
And I, I would also just pray um, for our nation, especially in light of what has transpired at our embassies in Egypt and in Libya. And we would also pray for those families who are affected by the loss of loved ones, as well as those that have been injured. We pray, Father, that you would give wisdom uh, to our leaders, our president, and uh, those in the Pentagon, and especially our military personnel who will be in harm's way. May you protect them, and may you watch over them, and may they accomplish their mission. And may, Father, uh, as we head into a presidential uh, season in the last uh, another month or so, uh, we pray, Lord, you would be with our nation, uh, guide us in our voting, and may that one whom you have appointed uh, to lead and guide our nation over the next four years uh, emerge. So, Father, we entrust ourselves to you. Watch over our people, our nation, and then we would also pray for the state of Israel, who is becoming increasingly isolated and alone. And I pray, Father, that we would be mindful of your word to all who would hear it, that he that keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, that you are the one who commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, promising that those who love her will prosper. And you have also told us you will bless them that bless your people and curse those who curse them. May you guard our nation from falling prey into that uh, realm which would lead us into receiving the hand of judgment. But, Father, may we be ones that are mindful of what you have said, and may our decisions be such that we would receive your blessings. So guide us this night, we pray in Messiah's name.